Welcome to In That Case. My name's Joel Townsend and this is my podcast about important public interest litigation which has shaped Australian life. You can find previous episodes on the website at www.inthatcasepodcast.com and on Apple Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at at Townsend Joel C. I'd be keen to hear your feedback, any ideas you have for future episodes or anything I could be doing better. I want to talk today about the case of the Director of Public Prosecutions and Walters, and this is a case which is about a very unusual attempt by the Victorian Parliament to do what parliaments are always trying to do, which is to constrain the discretion of sentencing judges. The Victorian Parliament instituted what was called a baseline sentencing scheme, and this involved some amendments to the Sentencing Act, which did essentially four things. So first of all, the Sentencing Act amendments described certain specified offences as being offences to which the baseline sentencing scheme was to apply. And secondly, for each of those offences, the amendments to the legislation set out a baseline sentence. So in the case of Walters itself, uh, which related to some charges of incest, there was a baseline sentence prescribed for incest of 10 years. The third thing the legislation did was to set out that it was Parliament's intention that the baseline sentence would be the median sentence imposed for offences of that kind. And the fourth thing the legislation did was to say that sentencing judges had to impose sentences in accordance with that intention. So in, co- in accordance with the intention the Parliament had that the baseline sentence would be the median sentence for the offence in question. And the question of what that actually meant for the sentencing judge was what was at issue in the Director of Public Prosecutions and Walters. And that was a case where the defendant was sentenced uh, for a number of charges of incest and it was agreed by all parties and by the court that while this was of course serious offending, it was below the midpoint in seriousness for uh, offending of that kind. That is, for incest, it was uh, in the uh, lower end of uh, levels of seriousness. Now, what that meant was there was a question at the first instance before Justice Lasry as to what, if anything, the baseline sentencing scheme meant. And the submission made by Tim Marsh uh, for the defendant was that this essentially meant that any sentence which the sentencing judge imposed, which was otherwise in accordance with sentencing law, would be also in accordance with the baseline sentencing scheme. And that's because the median is a description of the middle value in a set of values. And if this sentence fell below the midpoint in a set of values, that would be appropriate and would recognise the fact that it was below the midpoint in seriousness. At 
second instance, when the Director of Public Prosecutions appealed to the Court of Appeal, there was a more radical argument advanced by the defence. And that was that because predicting the median is essentially an impossible exercise in speculation for a sentencing judge to complete, the baseline sentencing legislation was simply incapable of being applied. And the court took the very unusual step, unprecedented, of finding that this was legislation which was simply incapable of application. It could not, on its terms, be applied to the exercise of sentencing discretion. It's a little abstruse. It gets into a bit of statistical detail. But I think it's a really interesting example of the way in which Parliament does seek to constrain sentencing discretion. And that's obviously still as topical now as it was when the baseline sentencing scheme was created. So I hope you enjoy what you hear from my conversation with Tim Marsh. You'd been involved from very early on. You say I mean, you'd been involved in the discussions um, soon after the, um, the legislation had been passed. Do you know what lay in the background? Um, the, the court says in the Court of Appeal judgment that there doesn't seem to be any parallel scheme anywhere else in the common law world. Do we have any sense of where this came from, what drove this legislation? Um, yes, yes and no. I mean, I mean, yes in the sense that it was clear at the time that mandatory sentencing um, was something which the court, which the, I beg your pardon, the parliament was certainly very interested in, but that mandatory sentencing was seen as a difficult scheme to implement by virtue of the lack of judicial discretion. So, I mean, my, my assumption was that um, baseline sentencing, sentencing by the median, was probably seen in some respects as a compromise, as a way of shaping the sentencing discretion, but in a way which um, should have or could have retained a level of um, judicial independence and judicial discretion. Um, having said that, uh, you know, it's, it's sometimes joked that a, a camel was a horse designed by a committee, um, and you know, this was legislation which I think showed some real clear defects in, in, in the sense that um, it looked, it, it read like a compromise. It read like what they had really wanted to do was impose a mandatory sentencing regime on the courts but settled on a compromise instead and in doing so produced something that was ultimately unworkable. Sometimes people say that the reason why they became lawyers is because they're bad at maths and I think um, in the preparation for this appeal it became quite apparent that there was a real reluctance on the part of uh, Victorian lawyers who are engaged in work that was likely to be affected by the baseline sentencing amendments to really grapple with what it meant from a statistical perspective. And I became involved in this process quite early on with a number of um, workshops and discussions that were being held within the profession at the time where you know different parties were getting together to sort of discuss what on earth this legislation might mean in a practical sense. And one of the things, as I said, became quite clear was that people were not really grappling with the central issue, which was what a median was. And I think, um, and I should say, my, my own background is primarily in um, 
genetics and biological sciences. I'm by no means a statistician, but the idea that um, a statistical term was something that one could actually look up and understand what it meant and then apply was something which you know I, I, I believed was possible. And um, given the absence of any definition in the amending act um, that provided any other meaning for what median meant, um, it was assumed and ultimately accepted by the Court of Appeal that the only real sensible definition for median was the statistical definition as used by groups such as the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Um, and what was, I, I think, really the, the central issue that, that emerged over the course of the appeal was that um, median is not a term which is referable to... Um, any kind of mid-level severity in terms of the offence. Um, one might assume, for example, that an average sentence or a mean sentence might bear some kind of correlation to an offence at the midpoint of seriousness. But the important distinction, and I think this was the thing which the profession took some time to grapple with, was that um, a median is a description of a statistical set that not only takes into account the values of the set, but the number of values of the set. And that wasn't something that a sentencing court could necessarily have any control over. And it was that issue which ultimately became the central point in the appeal and ultimately the point on which um, the appeal was successful. Um, I should say, though, at first instance, we ran the litigation in front of Justice Lasry in a slightly different way and I think a more conservative way than attacking the fundamental unworkability of the, of the legislation. Tim Marsh explained the concept of the median, such an important background concept for this legislation and this piece of litigation. I think at some point in this conversation we're going to have to grapple with how different distributions can can have the same median or how the same median can have a very different average value, a very different mean value. But I think um, in addition to everything you've just said, Joel, I think the other issue was that the legislation was simply completely silent on the mechanism by which the courts were to achieve this process. And the point you made a moment ago, which is that, yes, median is a value which you can um, pull out of a sentencing advisory council sentencing snapshot. Um, it, it might be useful in that context, but there are some critical points which um, one needs to be aware of, and that is that those sentencing advisory council snapshots are bounded in time. So the SAC produce a set of statistics which are a snapshot of sentencing practices from 2011 to 2016 for a particular offence. So because the um, because the, you've effectively got a, got a sample and a, and a period that you're sampling, there's a start date and an end date, and you have a fixed number of values within that. The, the difficulty that the Parliament created with this legislation was that it was requiring a court to sentence in a way that was compatible with the Parliament's intention, but to do so in a complete vacuum about what other sentences might be passed that would influence where that particular sentence sat in the sentencing range and whether or not it was above or below the median sentence. And this comes back to the earlier point I made about the fact that the median sentence does not correlate with an offence of um, mid-level seriousness. 
that the median is influenced by things like the number of sentences that are passed. So, I mean, we could, for example, even though it wasn't a, a baseline offence from memory, but we, we could use, for example, a an example of cultivated commercial quantity of cannabis. Um, that is a serious offence, and if you were a principal of a highly sophisticated operation um, and you had prior convictions and you pleaded not guilty and you ran a trial, you might expect to receive a significant sentence. In the same period of time, the courts might also deal with 10, 20, 100 low-level crop sitters of limited culpability with no prior convictions and who've all pled guilty and have significant matters in mitigation. The fact that there are so many people who are receiving sentences at the lower end of the scale will skew where the median sits. The median will end up being potentially far below the far below the sentence that was imposed on the serious offender that I used in the first example. Or conversely, um, a, an operation which nets uh, a significant number of high-level offenders could skew the median in the other direction. But the point being that there's no way that the judge who's sentencing that serious offender that I first mentioned could ever know what might follow his or her sentence that might affect the median in that way. And um, just for the purpose of illustration, one could imagine, um, you know, three offenders being sentenced for the same crime. Uh, one offender gets 10 years and the others each get one year each. And in that case, the median is one, one year, yep. one year sentence. Uh, and the mean is a four-year sentence because that's, that's the right. average of the three. And uh, so so that's illustrative of how dramatically uh, choosing uh, what statistical measure you use can, can yeah. mark. And I, I think that um, those distortions in the statistical um, spread of sentences becomes much more profound when you're talking about sentences that are comparatively rare or offences that are comparatively rare that the courts don't deal with a great a great deal of in terms of numbers because there a minor variation in terms of the sentences imposed by the court could in fact have a dramatic variation on where the mean sits mm. um a where the median sits and you know the, the important thing to remember here is that the, the median is simply the midpoint of the distribution of numbers um, if you plot all the numbers out on a line you pick the value where half the numbers are more than that and half the numbers are less than that. Um, and there is simply no correlation other than by chance between the value of the median and the value of the mean. You were involved in these early discussions and then it, it's apparent from reading the judgments of Justice Lazarus and then the Court of Appeal that this this was a case which was identified by the DPP as a test case to work out how these provisions operated. And so the matter went then before Justice Lazarus and the Court of Appeal. So I um, wondered if you might say something there. I guess one about VLA's institutional role and two about the fact that you are pursuing on behalf of this client both a plea uh, in mitigation of his particular crime, but also uh, you are um, seeking to have a systemic impact on the way in which this 
sentencing scheme operates? Yeah, look, it's a really interesting question, Joel. I think um, the, the first thing is you, you're quite right. This was an unusual case in the sense that it was identified at an early stage as being the first case that was going to be a baseline sentencing case. Um, this was an offence which ordinarily would have been dealt with in the county court. Um, and the sole reason why it was in the Supreme Court was because it could get on sooner and because it was um, a case of such significance in terms of um, the sentencing landscape. Um, your, the, 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 the real part of your question, though, is, is about that um, juggle between the institutional role and the role in representing um, the appellant who ultimately goes by the pseudonym of Walters. Um, I should say I'm employed as Chief Counsel at Victoria Legal Aid. By profession, I'm a barrister, but I work in-house and lead VLA Chambers, a team of specialist advocates here at Legal Aid. Um, That issue of tension between roles is a a real issue and a live tension for me and for most of my colleagues. But um, this was an instance where our primary duty was to the client. Our primary duty was to ensure that his... Um, defence was conducted in a way that was as advantageous to him as possible. And there were some, I I, I think looking back on it um, with the wisdom of hindsight, I think that had certain influences on how we ran the litigation, particularly at first instance. Um, As I hinted at earlier, I think our approach in the Supreme Court before Justice Lazary was a conservative approach. And essentially the argument that was run at first instance was that provided provided you as the sentencing judge were satisfied that this was an offence which ultimately would fall below the level of seriousness that you would expect to find at the median in the fullness of time, then it simply didn't matter what sentence you imposed. Um, When you say it didn't matter in in terms of the baseline sentencing scheme, the baseline sentencing scheme made no difference. It made no difference to the sentencing discretion. I mean, of course, it matters what sentence you impose, but um, to put it a different way, um, any legitimately imposed sentence would be compatible with Parliament's intent. Um, And and that really came down to the fact that provided, um, provided this was a case which ultimately would fall below the median, then any value was as good as any other value in falling below the median to satisfy the Parliament's intention that the new median would be the baseline. Um, This was a safe submission to make in some senses because um, notwithstanding the seriousness of the offending that Mr Walters was charged with, um, there was an easy argument to make as to why this case could be distinguished from other cases that were likely to come before the courts and why ultimately this would be a case that the court could be comfortably satisfied would fall below the median and therefore no interference in the sentencing discretion would be required. So that was the way that the, um, that was the, way that the original case was run. The, 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 DPP, the DPP submission to the contrary was in effect that um, all sentences should lift in order to satisfy the Parliament's intention. Um, our, our counter-argument to that was that um, his, his argument would, would have been 
valid if the parliament had legislated for a mean sentencing scheme, not a not a, um, a median sentencing scheme. Um, but yeah, that was certainly how it was run at the first instance, and I was quite conscious both then and in the Court of Appeal of the necessity to consider the impact on this particular accused. I mean, my job was to represent him, not to represent VLA. And in that sense, I think I think this particular appeal could be distinguished from other significant pieces of litigation that VLA were involved in at the time, such as um, uh, what's now being referred to as the guideline judgment in Bolton, which looked at um, the relevance of community corrections orders. That was one where legal aid, in fact, had standing to appear in an institutional capacity. Um, that was quite a different situation, I think. Mm. Then when you get to the Court of Appeal, I mean, in, in substance, the Court of Appeal accepts your argument that uh, because this is uh, impossible to predict what will ultimately be the median, this is a statutory scheme which is impossible of application. So, first of all, that's not something that you often, if ever, hear from the courts. Um, and secondly, I wanted to touch on um, Justice Whelan's judgment in dissent. But did you want to first um, talk a bit about whether that is a, a new animal to you, a judgment in which the court says we simply can't apply this statute? Um, it, it is, and in, in preparation for this appeal, I was desperately looking for um, other cases where a court of appeal had declared a piece of legislation unworkable and not capable of practical implementation. Um, and I was not able to find one. I mean, it's... But in, in some respects, that's not a surprise. This was really unusual legislation that was imposing a duty on the court with no mechanism to guide it. And one of the critical um, portions of the majority judgment talked about the fact that no amount of um, verbiage in the second reading speech could bridge the gulf that was left in the legislation where there was simply no mechanism that was prescribed. For the court to interpret in a mechanism um, would be for the court to essentially engage in, in, in legislation, would be a complete abrogation of the separation of powers. And that was ultimately the view that, um, that the majority took, led by um, President Maxwell. Um, and it, it, was an, it was an interesting hearing in the sense that the argument developed quite considerably over the course of the hearing. And um, I've got quite a distinct memory of being questioned by President Maxwell about about the, the, the relevance of the median as a way to describe um, a sentencing distribution. And the analogy that I used in reply to one of his questions was that um, ordinarily the median is a uh, statistical concept that is driven by how the values fall. And it was being used here in this context to drive how the values fell. And that distinction between a driving value and a driven value was one which ultimately, I think, resonated with the court. Be because of this difficulty that, you know, you have something that is essentially descriptive of how events have occurred in the past being used as a tool to shape how things might occur into the future. Um, and that really seemed to highlight the 
impossible situation that sentencing courts were being put in, where they were being expected to sentence in a way that was compatible with Parliament's intent, but in circumstances where they had no control over what any other judge would do. Because ultimately, it's where that sentence falls in the value of all of the sentences, which would mean whether or not um, their sentence was uh, conforming to the median. I mean, it raises an extraordinary um, uh, position that a, a sentencing court could accede to the DPP submission and and decide that this is a um, that that this requires all sentences to rise, but in doing so could still fall short of implementing Parliament's intention because even if all of the sentences increased a little bit, that still doesn't guarantee that the median will be the new baseline. Justice Whelan's judgment, it, it seems to me, is is um, a judgment which accepts that the legislation is clunky in that regard, accepts that the median is not um, necessarily a useful concept in doing what Parliament seems to have intended it to do, but says, look, um, just as a maximum sentence provides a guidepost, provides a yardstick for what sort of sentence you might impose in a very serious case. So the median sentence or the baseline sentence articulated in the legislation provides a rough guide to what might be around the midpoint of seriousness of offending, you know, inexpertly expressed, but it's good enough to be applied by the court. Is that the substance of what Justice Whelan says? Yeah, in effect, and I think as I've articulated before, the um, the, the, the problem with that is that um, th- there's a flawed assumption there that, that there is any uh, correlation at all between the baseline sentence and an offence of midline seriousness because not only, not only ought the... I mean, how can I put it? The, the, the distribution of sentences and where the median sentence falls is not only a product of the seriousness of the offences which fall before the courts, but the number of sentences which fall before the courts. So sentencing ranges um, just through the natural um, the natural way sentences um, and cases come before the court could be skewed high or low depending on the prevalence of um, serious offences, serious versions of that offence or less serious versions of that offence. Um, and that that can have a, a quite a dramatic impact in terms of where the median sits. It, it does not bear any correlation to an offence of midpoint seriousness, and that's where I think this legislation can be distinguished from um, the New South Wales anal- analogues. There's New South Wales legislation that attempts to do similar things, which did talk in terms of an offence of midpoint seriousness. Now. I still believe that an offence of mid, mid, midpoint or mid-level seriousness is an imprecise concept in and of itself, but um, that is ultimately something which a court might properly inform itself of. Um, it would be contested, um, it is controversial, but it is ultimately something which one might in fact be able to have an opinion about. Um, but you know, without sort of um, labouring the point, um, 
mid-level seriousness and medians um, have nothing to do with each other other than by chance. As I understand it, that there are a few effects that that has. First of all, there's a standard sentence prescribed for a range of offences, and and that is used as a guidepost for sentencing in the way that Justice Wheeler suggested the median might be used True. in the baseline sentencing scheme, and then says, um, in terms of comparing a person's offending to other offending and deciding um, what sentence should be imposed on that offender as against past offenders, you only look at other offenders who have also been sentenced under the standard sentencing scheme, so you ignore any other preceding cases. Mm -hmm. And it also sets out some standards as to what non-parole period um, should be imposed. So that's uh, it, it seems as though that parallels the New South Wales scheme, which was considered by the High Court in Muldrock, yep. and that seems to pass muster. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's... Um the, the situation where the baseline sentencing scheme had been declared unworkable by the courts, um, I mean, I, I guess that sort of brought a, a, some breathing space for the uh, legal community in Victoria, but the idea that that um, lacuna would remain unfilled forever, I suspect, was um, overly optimistic. I mean, without delving down into the nuts and bolts of this new... Um, standard sentencing regime, I think what this clearly does show is that there is an ongoing appetite for uh, legislative restriction of uh, judicial, uh, com complete and unfettered judicial freedom in sentencing. Um, and this, I think, has to be seen in the context of an ongoing um, interest, a very high level of, of interest by both parties in law and order reform as a primary policy platform. Um, which, you know, is, is not without its problems in terms of how it seems to have affected the administration of justice here in Victoria. And I, and indeed many other people, remain unconvinced that there is any particular problem with sentencing which is unable to be fixed through the current mechanism of appellate review. Uh, if there are sentences which are being passed which are manifestly below community's expectations, then... The DPP has the capacity to appeal. The Court of Appeal has shown some real appetite for not only increasing sentences but also um, identifying offences for which the sentences that are being passed are believed to be too low. Um, and that is something which I think has been uh, capable of quite significant change. Um, one of the interesting things in looking at... Um, the, I mean, preparing for, for the case of Walters, which involved um, essentially child child sex, um, allegations of um, child sexual abuse, was to see how remarkably the sentencing patterns for that have changed over the years. And indeed, uh, I think one of the things which the recent Royal Commission into institu Institutional Child Abuse um, noted was the way in which sentencing patterns for offences against children, particularly in that context of um, care, supervision and authority, have changed quite dramatically over the years. So I think it's a little bit of a straw man to suggest that the court system is not capable of dealing with changes in community expectations by itself without this sort of legislative scheme sitting over the top of it. Um, 
But nevertheless, um, it has to be acknowledged that we live in a society where there is apparently an unslakeable thirst for uh, law and order, and this is unlikely to be the end of the uh, legislative um, attempts to uh, fetter judicial discretion and to try and shape sentencing outcomes in a way that's palatable to the general public, I suspect. It's interesting, I was reflecting on that, and I was also reflecting on the fact that we haven't seen here in Victoria a mandatory sentencing scheme instituted along the lines of what we've seen in the Northern Territory, in WA, and certainly in other jurisdictions. And so I was wondering whether that reflected um, some acknowledgement on the part of Parliament that um, getting into the business of prescribing sentences is also a dangerous game and um, that while there is a desire to increase sentences and reduce judicial discretion, there is a recognition perhaps that there is some room for judicial discretion? Yeah, and I mean, I think this reflects in some sense, it reflects the strength of the independent judiciary here in Victoria, which is, um, you know, I think being quite, quite vocal in defending its own independence and its own traditions and I think it's done so quite successfully. Um, having said that, I mean, I, I don't, I, I, I wouldn't discount the fact that there are probably, you know, pockets of, um, pockets of interest within the current government and certainly within the opposition for mandatory sentencing and this would be regarded as being um, uh, by, by probably some parts of the community a significant step forward. Um, the, the, the real danger, I suspect, with mandatory sentencing only becomes evident in the aftermath. It's very easy to talk in terms of mandatory sentences for offences when you're talking prospectively because, of course, what you imagine are the worst offenders of any type. What you see when you actually begin to deal with these offences in the court system is that um, cases are not created equally. Uh, the severity of the offending varies enormously um, and so do the personal circumstances of, um, of the accused. And I think probably the, the most stark example of this would be within the realm of sentencing for offences of culpable driving. So culpable driving, um, offences involving such um, carelessness or negligence on the part of the driver that um, it contributes to an accident or to an incident in which... Um, somebody is killed. Um, culpable driving is a type of offence which runs the gamut from people conducting illegal drag races on public roads, ploughing into pedestrians and killing them while the drivers are drug affected and have multiple priors for doing similar things or unlicensed and so on. I mean, that, that, that's at one pole of um, culpable driving. At the other pole is somebody who falls asleep at the wheel, crashes into a tree and kills their best mate who's sitting in the seat beside them. Now, how you can suggest that those two cases are identical um, and therefore should receive the identical sentence is something which I think people don't necessarily imagine on the way into mandatory sentencing schemes, but which the courts then have to grapple with once they are in place. Um, and I use that as, as an example simply because 
um, culpable driving offences, you know, I think do have a, a massive range in terms of the level of um, culpability of the accused, um, their personal circumstances, the impact of the offending on them. Um, in some cases, the accused in these cases are living with the lifelong consequences of having killed their best friend, their partner, their child. And, you know, I just don't know that one can lump all of these things in the same basket and say they should therefore uh, deserve all the same sentence. And I think one can make similar observations when you look at, um, at cases in other areas. I mean, for example, I've been involved in a number of cases now of attempted murder where the attempted murder occurred in the context of a person um, trying to uh, terminate the suffering of a terminally ill family member. Again, how one could suggest that, I mean, I'm not suggesting that for a minute people should take it upon themselves to, to do that sort of thing, but how one could suggest that that is offending which is in any way comparable to somebody who attempts to murder somebody in an act of uh, domestic violence or, um, you know, revenge for a drug deal gone wrong or, or any other number of scenarios. Um, you know, the, the, the courts are required to deal with an enormous range of culpability when it comes to offences, an enormous range of circumstances when it comes to offenders. Um, and although I can understand, um, on some level I can understand the public disquiet about certain sentences that are passed, um, study after study shows that when the public is informed to the same extent as the judge who passed sentence, then the perception about the inadequacy of sentence, in fact, drops away. Um, there was a study done um, a number of years ago now that showed uh, when, uh, I think it was called You Be the Judge, and it showed that members of the public, when apprised of the full circumstances of the case, um, imposed lower sentences than the sentencing judges did. Um, so m my own feeling is that a lot of the vitriol and um, a disquiet about current sentencing practices is really occurring in a vacuum of information and that if people were properly informed about what was really occurring, um, that those sentencing decisions would be a great deal more explicable. Well, I hope that having Tim Marsh talk about this very interesting and complex piece of legislation and piece of litigation has made all of that a little more explicable and I hope that all of you have learned a bit about this very controversial issue of sentencing law from this podcast. Uh, thanks so much to Tim for coming on and talking to me. Thanks to you all for listening. Once again, the podcast is at www.inthatcasepodcast.com and I'm on Twitter at, at TownsendJoelC. I'll look forward to talking to you again on the next episode of In That Case. Thank you.